0: Thank you. That bumper. It's the uh, first time I've seen it this year. How many more of those jokes can we uh, squeeze out this morning? Happy New Year. So glad you guys have chosen to worship with us today. It's great to be here. My name is Dave Lewis. I'm the community pastor here at Bayview Glen Church, and I don't get to preach very much. And so this is uh, uh, a great thing uh, for us this morning, or for me, maybe not for you, but more for me. Um, But anyway, if you walk into my house, you won't find a family photo hanging on the wall. And it's not, <laughs> it's not that I think there's something wrong with my family. I mean, I'm not embarrassed of them. They're not funny looking. Well, at least two of the six, anyway. One of those is me. Um, the reason why you won't find a family picture hanging in our home is because I broke it. Well, the frame, anyway. Anyway. I didn't break it on purpose, but if I'm totally honest with you, I wasn't that upset after it broke. My family tells me when I whisper, they can't hear me, so yeah, anyway. Yeah, you see, I'm not a fan, or I love the picture, I'm just not a fan of the frame. I've never... Felt the frame really connected with the picture at all. You see, the picture of my family is so warm and vibrant, and while the frame, the frame feels so formal and dark and cold. So when I broke the picture, I saw it as an opportunity to get it reframed. Because sometimes pictures just need new frames. The reason that I'm telling you this is because we're looking at a passage of Scripture today that I think needs a new frame. It's not that the picture is embarrassing or ugly, but sometimes the conversation that frames this passage of Scripture can be both of those, leaving us as Christians sounding arrogant and judgmental and narrow-minded. I would say the very opposite of what Jesus desires us to be. We're going to look today at John 14, verses 1 to 14. And I would encourage you to find it on your device or in your own Bible. Or If you don't have a Bible, there's, a seat, uh, there's one in the seat back in front of you. And as always, it's going to pop up on the screen behind me so that you can follow along. But there's a lot going on in this passage. But the verse that jumps out to us, the one where the conversation around it can get controversial and ugly, is this one from John 14, verse 6, where Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It was after a Christmas Eve service while I was in Montreal where the conversation around this verse got ugly. You see, we had just had this incredible service, we kind of kicked the chairs out of our sanctuary, we created kind of these conversational spaces, and so we had conversation and carols and candles and cookies and a lot of other C words, and it was, uh, it was just an amazing time for us to be together and to celebrate everything that comes with Christmas Eve. And after this Christmas Eve service was finished, this girl that had, uh, was attending, she came up to find me after. And she said, hey, uh, I just want to introduce myself. You know, I'm so, so glad this is my first time here. It's actually my first time in any church. And I just didn't think it was going to be like this. So I, I really liked it. I was so glad that, uh, that I was able to come. I'm like, oh, great. Well, welcome here. I'm glad that you, you, know, you, you felt a part of what was going on today. And she says, yeah, there's just one thing. I was like, oh, well, what's that? She's like, I didn't believe anything that you said. I was like, oh, okay, okay. And so uh, I, I asked her, I started up a conversation with her. I said, so what is it about what you know I believe or what we said tonight that you didn't believe? And we engaged in this conversation. She was asking questions and we were going back and forth. And you know how... You can always tell when uh, there's somebody else that's kind of eavesdropping in on your conversation. You know, they're kind of half in theirs and half in yours because they kind of like start doing this. They're kind of leaning over closer to yours. You know, the, the hair on the back of your neck starts to tingle because you feel like somebody's watching you, you know. And, and there was somebody that was doing that, it was my friend. And uh, my friend decided to come over and interject himself into our conversation. And I didn't know if he just didn't think I wasn't doing a good enough job, like, answering this girl's questions or what was going on. Um, but he, anyway, chose to come over and, and like I said, interject himself into our conversation. And so he started to ask her questions. And they started a back and forth and a response. And and it, I could tell he was getting frustrated because every time that he would give a statement about Jesus or about what he believed, she would just kind of be like, eh, I just don't, I just don't believe it and so his questions started to get more direct and they started to come at a faster rate and I could see the color in his cheeks starting to rise and then finally he snapped and he looked at her and he said yeah well Jesus says he's the way the truth and the life and if you and he's the only way to the father and if you don't believe in Jesus you're going to hell what do you think about that well I mean, if you're keeping a list of like top 10 things to say to people when you want to end a conversation, just, just put that at number one, all right? You tell people going to go into hell, it's all over. You can just walk away. And that's exactly what this girl did. She looked at me with this shocked look on her face like she just, what just happened. And she turned away and walked out the door. And I never saw her again. <clears throat> the frame is broken. Don't get me wrong. I have no issue with what Jesus says and the picture that he presents of himself here. But if we are going to seriously follow Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, I think we need to reframe the conversation. We're in our belief series and what our hope is is that as we go through the series that all of us together as a family will be putting our active trust in what it means to follow Jesus so that we can be disciples who reflect his character and priorities in all of life. And we've said in previous sermons that putting our active trust in Jesus involves more than simply giving mental assent to some abstract truths about Jesus. Putting our active trust in Jesus involves us acting on What we believe, so that our beliefs and our actions are consistent with who Jesus is and who he calls us to be. And so, before we jump into this passage of scripture, I just want to give you a little bit of background to what's going on here. We are partial, part of the way through this upper room discourse. These are the verses in John, our chapters in John, sorry, the, the, the upper room discourse starts in John chapter 13 and goes all the way to John 17. And what we know about the upper room discourse is that it's a very long speech by Jesus, and the reason why it's so long is because he is kind of giving his last words to his disciples. You know, he knows that he is about to die. He knows that he is about to go uh, away, and and he's wanting to make sure that his disciples have everything that they need, that they hear these final words from him because he is about to send them out into the world to do the works that he has been doing with them. We've talked about that before, how, how rabbis with their disciples, the hope is is that those rabbis will send their disciples out in the world to do the things that the rabbi has taught them to do. And so at this point in the discourse, though, we need to understand that the disciples have just gotten the bad news. They've gotten the bad news that Jesus is going to die. Jesus has just told Peter that he's going to betray him. He's, he's just said goodbye to Judas, who has left uh, to, to, or sorry, uh, Judas was going, left to go out to betray him. Peter was going to deny him. And the disciples are kind of reeling from this news, and so their hearts are a little troubled here. And so we're going we're gonna to get to that in a moment. But the other thing that I want you to know about this passage of Scripture is that the way that John um, structures his book is around these seven I am's. And we've talked about these seven I am statements in uh, previous sermons. And so we've talked about how Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life. In John 15, that we're gonna get to in a couple weeks, Jesus says, I am the vine. But the one that we're talking about today is from John 14, and that the I am statement is this, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here's what I find amazing about this statement. And I don't know if you know this, I found this out, we have some Jewish friends that are part of our congregation, and so I asked them, I said, like, what is it, you know, when Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, how does that resonate with you? And they're like, oh, It resonates. I'm like, oh, really? Like, what, what about it resonates? And they're like, well, um, I don't know if you know this, but the way that Jewish people talk about the Torah, like the, the books of Moses, the law, we talk about it as the way, the truth, and the life. And that was amazing to me because, I mean, we read in the first chapters of John how, how John talks about Jesus as the Word made flesh, And so what is going on here when Jesus talks about this, when he he talks about himself in this way, that he is literally saying to his disciples, I am the word made flesh. All the law, all the prophets, all the things that that are written in the Old Testament, everything is fulfilled in me. And if you want to know how to fulfill the requirements of the Torah, if you want to know what it means to live a life pleasing to God, then come, follow me. Come, follow me. So today we're going to look at what does it it actually mean when Jesus calls himself the way. We're going to look at what does it mean when he calls himself the truth. And finally, what does it mean when he calls himself the life. And then we're going to talk about what does it mean for us to follow Jesus actually as the way, the truth, and the life. So let's look at the first question. What does Jesus mean when he calls himself the way? You see, when Jews referred to Torah as the way, what they meant was it was the pathway to God, If you wanted to find the path to God, you needed to study Torah. You needed to study that with a rabbi. You needed to study that in your synagogue. It was the way that you were going to find out who God was. And so in Psalm 119 verse 1, it says this, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. What we see in this verse is that the, the poet, the Hebrew poet here, has actually used a poetic device that is called parallelism, all right? And what parallel, parallelism is, is just a fancy way of saying the, uh, the same thing twice, and so if you look at the beginning of that verse where it says, blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord what we see here is that those uh, passages are actually interchangeable with one another. The Hebrew poet has, has, has set it up so that these things are synonymous. They're synonyms for one another. So the way is the law. In Exodus chapter 18, verse 20, God is talking to Moses and he says, you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what They must do. You see, this is the language that Jesus picks up on here when he talks about himself as the way, the truth, and the life. But when he he talks about himself as the pathway to God, like I said, he's not talking about the Torah. He's literally talking about him. I am the path to God. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's look at John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. John says Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What Jesus is saying here is that if you want to know the way to the Father's presence, if you want to discover a life that is connected to God, then you need to follow him. But you know, sometimes in our zeal to prove, like my friend, that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, we forget that Jesus, as the way, is also showing us a new way to live. He's showing us a new way to live. You see, before John 14 comes John 13. And what happens in John 13 is that Jesus shows his disciples the full extent of his love. By taking off his outer garment and taking up a towel and bending down and washing his disciples' feet. The master now becomes the servant. And he says, I've set an example for you. Do as I have done to you. In fact, Jesus goes on Later on in, in John chapter 13, and he says in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Well, how did Jesus love his disciples? He loved them with a sacrificial and self giving love. Let's imagine for a second what that actually looks like, what the love of Jesus, the sacrificial and self giving love of Jesus, actually looks like. You know, it it looks like forsaking his rightful place, giving up his rights and his rightful place with the Father to come to earth. It looks like accepting a mission that would lead to his humiliating death. It looks like taking on our humanity and humbling himself to become a servant of all. It looks like washing the feet of a friend who would betray him and another who would deny him. It looks like giving up his life at the hands of his enemies and laying it down for his friends. And I could go on and on about the sacrificial and self-giving love of Jesus, but the reality of it is that he commands us to love love one another in the same way. You see, the greatest challenge to following Jesus is loving others like he loves us. And the reason for this is that it requires presence. Presence is something that, with which our digital-driven society really struggles. You know, there was a Yale professor who, has an experiment during one of his lectures on technology, asked his class uh, to think back to the day before. This is amazing. He asked them to think back to the day before and count up the number of places that they had been simultaneously. So like chatting on a mobile and skim reading a book while browsing a website with the TV on in the background and direct messaging three friends, that's like seven places. All right? Seven places at once. Most of the class could list at least seven. While the others came up with lists in double figures. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that anyone who can be in seven places at once is not really anywhere in particular. You see, managing our media along with our daily schedules leaves us with very little margin. And so when we talk about following in the way of Jesus by loving others like him, we get stressed out. I mean, we can't add anything else to our already full calendars. And I wanna tell you this. Following Jesus is the way. It's not about doing more things. It's about doing things differently. It's about reorganizing our lives so that things that we do and the way we live are aligned with the self-giving and sacrificial way of Jesus. Here's the thing. When we are present to others so that we can demonstrate this love, it's not just us that are present to others, but what we actually do is open up space for Christ to be present with us to them. On Friday night, we celebrated my wife's birthday downtown. And as we were walking from the restaurant back to our car, we saw lots of people claiming their space on the sidewalk to sleep for the night. And my daughter Hannah, who was walking lines alongside, of, alongside of us and was talking to us, all of a sudden, she felt this jingle of coins in her pocket, and she's like, oh wait, and she runs over and she finds uh, the, the cup of somebody who had just laid down, and she uh, put the change in the cup, and then she ran back and she joined us as we were continuing our conversation. Her birthday's coming up at the end of the month, and so she started talking about her own birthday and what she actually wanted for her birthday. And she said, you know, Dad, for my birthday, all I really want is, is money. I'm like, oh, you, just, you just gave some away, I, you know. She's like, all I really want is money. And I'm like, okay, well, uh, you know, well, wh- wh- what do you want this money for? Like, what do you want to do with it? It's not unusual for a broke university student to ask for money. And she says, well, I want to buy gift cards. I'm like, gift cards? Like, what are you, you going to do with the gift cards? And I was having trouble in my mind, like, putting together why she wanted money to buy gift cards. Like, I could just get her gift cards. Like, What's the deal here? And she says, well, Dad, you know, because around the University of Ottawa, there's, like, a lot of people who are homeless, and uh, and so what I want to do with my birthday money is buy these gift cards so that I can go and I can put like little Tim Hortons cards in their cups or whatever as I'm walking around you know campus and going uh, to different places and I was like wow that was amazing I said so why do you want to do this and she said to me she said dad I just want them to know that they're seen that's all I want I just want them to know that they're seen. You see, it wasn't the giving of change or the asking of money for gift cards that really struck me. It was how Hannah had already created the space in her mind, in her schedule, in her heart, with her resources. She already created that space to be present, even in a small way, to those that she encounters in her neighborhood around her university. Now, some of you guys ask me, how do you get kids like that? You want to know my answer? I have no idea. Literally no idea. It's but by the grace of God, I would say. But I guess the question remains for you and I. How are we going to reorganize our lives? So that we can follow in the way of Jesus by expressing his self giving and sacrificial love to others. What activities need to be shifted or canceled? What resources need to be reallocated? So that there's space for us to be present, that there's space for us to demonstrate the sacrificial and self giving love of Jesus as we follow him as the way. You know, N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, says this. The truth, the life through which we know and find the way is Jesus himself. The Jesus who washed disciples' feet and told them to copy his example. The Jesus who was on his way to give his life as the shepherd for the sheep. Was that arrogant? Was that self-serving? Only when the church recovers the nerve. (laughs) I love that. Only when the church recovers the nerve to follow Jesus in his own mission and vocation, I suspect, will it be able to recover its nerve in making the claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, we've looked at what it means for Jesus to call himself the, the way, what, but what does it mean when he calls himself the truth? You see, when Jesus calls himself the truth, his disciples would have immediately connected that word truth with the law and the prophets. You see, Psalm 119, 142 says, your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. See, the law is true because God gave it. You know, truth could only be found in God, and then God revealed his truth to his people through the law and the prophets. And so God became seen by his people, by the Israelites. He was seen as the God of truth. And Torah was said to be his thoughts and the revelation of his purpose in the creation of the universe, thereby revealing truth to them. God was not this guardian of some abstract entity called truth. He is truth. It is his very character. He is the God who could be trusted, who is able to act, and whose care for his people is sure. This is why the Israelites recounted the stories of when God had brought them out of Egypt and when he delivered them from their enemies. Every story was a reminder that God was true, not just to his own character, but to his word. He was their protector, he was their deliverer, and he was their savior. And the coming of Jesus was further proof of God's faithfulness to his own character. He had promised a savior and now had delivered. Listen to how Jesus responds to Philip's question here. Jesus said to him, as we keep going through John 14, starting in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Jesus is now the embodiment of truth. In fact, John actually says that at the beginning of his his gospel where he says, the word has made flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. We have seen the glory of the only son, one full of grace and truth. You see, just as the truth of God's character had been on display through the fulfillment of his promises to Israel, Jesus is now saying, in the same way, that you have trusted the Father, you can now trust the Son to make good on his word. And just in case you needed proof, just check out what I've done. Look at all of the things that I have done up to this point. You know, a lot of you know the story of my wife's journey through her illness and how God has shown himself faithful time and time again. And I can tell you, it hasn't been an easy journey. There's been lots Of uh, and plenty of times of anger and doubt along the way. But what most of you don't know is the story behind that story. The one that we kept telling ourselves. The one that helped sustain us through the darkest of moments because it reminded us that Jesus was with us, that he was leading us, and that he would never leave us. I call it our story of the month of miracles. You see, I was a youth pastor way back in the day um, with, uh, in a small town called Alberta, or Vermilion, Alberta. I know you guys don't know where that is, and that's, that's okay, it's of little, little consequence, it doesn't matter, but, uh, when I was in, as a youth pastor in that small town, what I did was I, I grabbed our high school students, and I took them on a missions trip to Quebec, and, uh, you know, I had this plan as a youth pastor was that we were gonna make this little small town kind of this missions hub. We were gonna send teams to Quebec and teams, you know, kind of to all over the world to, to equip students to actually engage in the mission of Jesus. And uh, as after I took that group of students to Quebec, I, I came back from that trip, and I was remember I was sitting alone in the sanctuary of the church that I was at, and I was just praying, and I was just asking God, you know, God, what is it about this trip that you're, you know, you, you want us to learn? You know, how, how are you trying to reveal yourself to us? And I can remember as clear as day God saying this to me: "You're not going to be the sender, but the sent." You're not gonna be the sender, but the sent. And I was like, wow, Like, wh- what, what does that even mean? And so I went home with my wife and I told her about what had been going on and, and as we prayed through it, we just sensed that God was leading us to pack up all of our stuff in Vermilion and, uh, and head out to Montreal. And so we, uh, we started to do that. And in order to get to Montreal, first uh, we were gonna be sent actually as missionaries with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And uh, that's the family of churches that Bayview Glen, uh, Bayview Glen is actually a part of. And so uh, we were going to be sent as missionaries to Quebec. And so before, to, before I could get to Montreal, we had to go to seminary. I had some schooling to finish and all this kind of stuff. And so we sold everything that we had. We packed up the car. We packed up the three kids. And, uh, and we, we went, back to, uh, went back to school. And I can remember the February before I was to graduate from, se- uh, from seminary in April, April. So the February before I was to graduate, the head of the missions department for the Christian Missionary Alliance actually was sitting at my kitchen table, and he said to me, he says, Dave, I I got bad news. I'm like, well, I mean, like really, like how how bad can it be? Oh, he said, oh, that's pretty bad. I'm like, okay, (laughs) what is it? He's like, well, you know how the Christian Missionary Alliance, you know how we pay our missionaries is like, everyone kind of donates to this big pot, and then we see how much money we have, and then we send missionaries out. He's like, yeah, the, the, the pot's empty. Um, we don't have any money to send any new missionaries. And my wife and I were sitting at the table and our jaws just kind of dropped. We were like, okay, uh, we got enough money to get us to April because we were supposed to go to Montreal in May. Uh, you know, what are, what are we gonna do? We've sold everything. We've kind of, you know, given ourselves to what we sense is God's call in our lives. It's so like I said, this story is called The Month of Miracles because no joke, a couple of weeks after, um, we got this bad news. Uh, I got a phone call from one of my friends in Vermilion, and they were like, "Hey, um, you know our son goes to the same school as you and uh, and he 's kind of in need of a car and we know that you have this this small car and, and you got you know three kids and and we have uh, we have a van and we were just wondering if you 'd be interested in trading that so just so you know the the trade, I was trading like a, and this was back in like the '90s I was trading a nineteen ninety-two crappy little Saturn for, like, a fully loaded 1998 Dodge Grand Caravan. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that trade. Yeah, that's, uh, it's going to be tough, but I'll, I'll do it. So I, I traded my car for a van. And then a week after that, I got a, f- a phone call from a friend in Montreal, and he says, hey, um, there's this guy that I know that, like, lives in this huge house, and he's going away um, on, a, on a sabbatical, he's a teacher at the University of Montreal, and he's going away on a sabbatical, and he just, he, he just wants someone to live in his house. Like, all you have to do is pay the taxes. Like, would you be interested in something like that? I'm like, okay, I got a van, I, I, I got a house. I said, okay, I, I, just, I just need a job. I, that, that's all I need, right? And, I, and I, you know, you start looking at McDonald's and see if they're hiring and all that kind of stuff. But you know, seriously, two weeks after that, I got a phone call from my friend, from, his name's Thomas Chan, he's from Montreal Chinese Alliance Church, and he says, hey, uh, you know, we heard that, uh, that you were looking for a job, and so we were wondering if you'd be interested in coming to our church to serve as the, English, as the pastor to our English congregation. So within a month, I got a new car, I got a new house, and I got a new job. You know, God never promised that life would be easy, but he does say that he will never leave us or forsake us. And this is what I have found to be true. And these are the stories that my family, we tell ourselves when times are dark. And so, my question to you is what is your story? How have you seen God be true to you? What's your God story that kind of takes you through some of the deepest and darkest struggles that you have? But you know, the other thing that I found to be true when Jesus calls himself as the truth is that truth is not some abstract concept that is out there waiting to be found. You know, truth is personal. Truth is personal. And I put that with a capital P, and the reason for that is because truth now comes to us in the person of Jesus, And so following Jesus as the truth should always keep us in this posture of humble seekers. Humble seekers after the truth. Humble seekers after Jesus. Because Paul even says, now we only know in part. Now we only know in part. One day we're going to know fully. But now we only know in part. And we need to keep this in mind when we're in conversations about Jesus. Because we're not offering abstractions or arguments uh, about Jesus that people need to believe. We need to remember that we're actually offering Jesus as truth. We're actually offering Jesus. And so our conversations need to be tempered with his character. They need to be tempered with who he is. Our conversations about Jesus shouldn't be violent. Like my friend's conversation with that girl. Our conversations about Jesus should reflect who Jesus actually is. You know, actually, maybe our conversations about Jesus should be more like invitations. Invitations for others to come and discover the truth of Jesus with us. So, we've looked at Jesus as the way, we've looked at him as the truth. Well, what does it mean when Jesus calls himself the life? What does it mean when Jesus calls himself the life? You know, to the Old Testament Jew, the life was the Torah or the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 20, Moses gives the Israelites a choice to make. They can choose life and blessing, or they can choose death and rebellion and adversity from God. If they choose life, then they have to walk in God's ways and keep his law because God is their life. If they choose death, they were free to ignore God's ways and God's laws. Moses gave them this advice, choose life. For the Israelite to follow the law was to choose life because Torah, like I said, was the life. And so when Jesus calls himself the life, what he is saying was that he is the life giver. It is he who brings life into a world that is full of death and chaos. And those who follow in his way and do the works that he calls them to do ultimately bring life and renewal into the world. Listen to what Jesus says. Truly, I truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. You know, scholars go back and forth on the meaning of what, uh, of what Jesus means when he says that we will do greater works than he that they, they go back and forth well does it mean that we're going to like have you know do these miraculous things that we're going to see people get healed and raised from the dead and the blind you know we're going to see and all this kind of stuff or does it just mean that because there's so many followers of Jesus now that the, the it's the number it's the quantity of works that are going to be done and you know i don't I don't really care uh, what that phrase actually means when it comes to greater works, but what I do care about is this, is that we have to remember that when Jesus talks about the greater works, who is it that he's talking to? He's talking to his disciples. And he's saying, you are gonna go and do these greater works, not by yourself. Not by yourself. You are gonna do these greater works together. You are gonna go out, I send you out to be on mission together. You know, we talk in our life groups a lot about, you know, how can we bring life into the neighbourhoods that we're a part of. And so it's always a conversation that I'm having with our life group leaders, um, you know, as as we go through our sessions. And and there was one group that fired me back a story about how they had the opportunity to actually go and bring life into their neighbourhood. And it was an, an amazing story. And they did something very simple. They went on a prayer walk. They went on a prayer walk through their neighborhood. And so um, as they were walking through the neighborhood and as they, were, they themselves were hanging out and, and receiving life, you know, just from that experience as they walked and prayed through their neighborhood, God actually started to bring people to them. And so they're standing on the street corner and all of a sudden this, they strike up a conversation with, with this guy. And as the conversation starts unfolding, he asks if they would pray for him. And so they do. And they keep going on their prayer walk through the neighborhood and they end up in Starbucks. And as, you know, they order their coffees and all that kind of stuff and one of the persons in their group actually strikes up a conversation with the barista. And the barista just starts to all of a sudden just open up and kind of share his life with this guy that is just that he's just met that just ordered a coffee. And he starts talking about his mom and how uh, his mom's sick and, you know, what he really just wants is somebody to pray for him. And so this Guy took the opportunity, this person in one of our life groups took the opportunity to pray for the barista in Starbucks and for his mom. I just think it's beautiful. I think it's amazing. You know, it's just a, it's a, it's a small thing. But the other thing that I want us to know about these greater works, the works that we do, yes, we do them together as a community, but the thing is this, is that at the end of this verse, Jesus says, greater works will be, uh, than these will he do because I am going to the Father. And we're gonna talk more about that next week, but the thing about Jesus going to the Father is that when he went to the Father, he sent the Spirit of God, his very presence, back to be with his disciples. And so when we do greater works, we're doing the greater works together, not just on a human level, but we're doing these greater works with us and God together. And you know what? I really believe that God is already at work in our neighborhoods. He's already at work there bringing life into our neighborhoods. And so when we go about into our neighborhoods and we start Going and doing these greater works, what we discover is that God is already there. It's exactly what that group discovered. God is already at work. He's already bringing people and drawing people to himself. He wants people to find hope and healing. He wants people to experience his love. Jean Vanier says this. He talks about the purpose of these works. It is to give life and eternal life, and to reveal the face and heart of God to people. It is to be the presence of God in the world where there is an absence of God. God's works are not big. They're not big miracles, which some heroic disciples may be called to do. But all these works of simple kindness and goodness, which give people life and lead them to God. A few years ago, my nephew, his name's Kenton, was really kind of struggling with questions about God. And we were in this conversation, we're going back and forth, and he's asking me, you know, why, basically, he says, Uncle, like, why, why do you believe? Why do you believe in God? Why do you follow Jesus? And uh, I had to think about that for a moment, and I said, well, you know, Kenton, I, I hope my answer is not too simplistic for you, but but I follow Jesus because it works. And he looked at me, he's like, what what do you mean it works? I said, "Well, well, think about it. I can't think of any other faith system, any other ideology, any other philosophy, any other religion that has the power to change the world like Jesus does. That has the power to bring life to where there is darkness. Because all those other systems don't require the sacrifice that Jesus requires from us as his followers. He requires us to give, uh, give of ourselves. He requires us to love sacrificially. And by doing that, we actually bring life into the world and we bring change. There is no other system, no other faith that I have encountered that actually can do that. And so I follow Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Because it works. Because I want to see the world changed. And I believe that if we embrace Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, if we would really live like he calls us to live, that we can do just that, that we can change the world. You know, um, it's interesting how sometimes God gives you opportunities to redeem conversations that you've had in the past. And... and. Uh, You know, I opened this uh, sermon this morning with telling you the conversation that I had with that girl, uh, you know, after our Christmas Eve service and how it was interrupted with this verse, the way, the truth, and the life. But I had a conversation, I had the opportunity to have a conversation with a guy um, uh, about a year ago. His name was Nino, and I was able to reframe for him. What does it mean to follow Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life? And so what happened was, I was in my office one day, and Becky, uh, one of our, uh, one of our uh, assistants in the office, she came back, and she said, hey, Dave, there's uh, somebody you know here who uh, just wants to have some questions, just has some questions about God. He just wants to talk to somebody. Are you, are you free to do that? I was like, well, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess I could do that. I guess I could talk to Nino about God. And so Nino came back, he came into my office, and he sits down in the chair, and he, I said, so Nino, tell me, what, what, what kinds of questions do you have? He says, well, I, I just need you to understand a couple things first. I'm like, okay. He says, you know, here's, here's the deal. I actually believe in God, all right? I, I believe in God because... Um, or I believe there is a God because I look at all the stuff that's around me and I think there's no way that any of this thing, any of this what we see could happen by chance. He's like, I, I, just, I just can't believe that. I can't bring myself to believe that. So then I started thinking about, you know, well, which God should I believe in then? And, and uh, you know, so I did some research and I found that the three biggest religions in the world, Islam, Christianity, and, and Judaism, well, you guys all say you believe in the same God. All right, so I figure if like over half the world believes in this God, well, that it, it's it must be the right God. Okay, so um, now what I need you to do is I just need to t- you to tell me like which which one of the three should I believe in? I was like, oh, okay. I said, well, Nino, you know, I you know I, I can't really I can't really speak for you know. Um, for Judaism, and I can't really speak for Islam. I don't know what it is that they, that they think about Jesus, but I can really tell you what Jesus means to me from, from, our, uh, from our own, uh, my own faith tradition. And I, I said to him, I said, Nino, I said, can you imagine a world, can you imagine a world in which, you know, you didn't have to worry about if you had need, because you knew that someone was gonna be there to kind of help you out, that someone was gonna have your back, and it didn't matter what the need was, you know, whether that was an emotional support or whether that was food or whatever it was. That you were gonna, you, you were surrounded by people who knew you, who were present to you, and who loved you. And that that was expected of you as well. That you gave back and that you gave life back into this community. Like, what does that sound like to you? He says, well, I, I, you know, if I'm honest with you, Dave, that actually, that actually sounds like heaven to me. I said, yeah, I said, Exactly. Exactly, it sounds like heaven. You see, this is the type of community that Jesus came to create. You know, the the truth about Jesus is this, is that he invites us into a new way to live. He invites us into a way of life that is about sacrifice, that is about giving ourselves for the other. Giving ourselves to each other. I said, Nino, when you really think about it, you know... um, the way of Jesus is so different than the way that we usually live in the world, right? I mean, because we're so attached to our own selves, we're so attached to kind of, you know, climbing the corporate ladder or or, or we're, we're uh, attached to the things that we consume, our material possessions or all of these things. Our lives are really self-focused. They're not focused on others. And so what happens ultimately is that By embracing that way of life, the life that is focused on ourselves, we actually bring death into the world. When we're selfish, we bring death to relationships. We bring death, and you can go across the gamut of things. We actually start to destroy our societies and our cultures as people are oppressed, as others step over them to get the things that they want. I said Jesus invites us into a totally different way to live. Like I said, a way that is about sacrifice, a way that is about giving yourself to the other. And so we need to repent. We need to turn away from that way that leads to death. And we need to embrace the life that Jesus has given us. This new way of life that he has shown us. This way of giving ourselves to the other. I said, because when we do that, we actually bring new life into the world. We bring life to where there is death. Order to where there's chaos. I said, what, what does that sound like to you? He said, You know, Dave, that actually makes a lot of sense. Like, why don't more people believe that? I said, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But I hope one day they will. I hope one day all of us will really embrace what it means to follow Jesus as the way, the truth. In the life. let's pray. Father God as we come before you today we're reminded from the words of John that you revealed yourself to us through your Son Jesus, that you took on our flesh, you took on our humanity to show us what is true, to show us the truth about yourself, to show us the way in which you did long for us and desire for us to live and to show us how we could actually bring life into a world that is given to death. And so God, my prayer for us today is that we would really take stock of what it means to follow you in this way. God, that we would be willing to open the space in our life to be present to others. That we'd open the space in our life to demonstrate your self-giving and sacrificial love. God that through us you would do these greater works that bring life and your presence to where there's an absence. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.